Welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch, a podcast discussing the ideas and practices of making disciples of Jesus. We believe the best conversations happen over food. So grab your lunch and join us as we discuss how to have and help others have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is Disciple Making Over Lunch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch. My name is Brian French, and I'm back again with my good friends, PJ Boganiewski. This is PJ. And Danish House. Hi there. And I am so excited. We are excited as a group for today's show because this is part two, uh, the final part, the concluding part of our conversation with Bill Davis. And he's going to be talking again all about end of life and that, well, sometimes uncomfortable topic of death. Yeah, that, that's right, Brian. Bill Davis, well, he wrote a book called Departing in Peace, Biblical Decision-Making at the End of Life. We found this uh, book and this conversation with Bill Davis to be profoundly practical. I mean, there was a lot of really great stuff found in this interview. He was more than generous to join us on the podcast. And as we were interviewing with him, it was one of those interviews where he had so much stuff to say. Mm. You just didn't want to interrupt him. He he just continued to talk (laughs) about things that he had experienced, things that he had helped other people to experience, and now how he teaches other people to help people make decisions at the end of life. One of the things I appreciated about the interview, and you've heard this in part one, you'll hear this in part two, is how full of life uh, Bill Davis is. He's he's full of life and joy and delight in the Lord and delight in the things of God. And you you might think that talking about death questions would make one grim, Um, but that's not the case. uh, Let us talk about death today. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? But but that's not the case in this interview, and it's not the case in this book. And, you know, I found in my life that it's important to ask these questions. Questions about the end affect how you live your life. You, You live your life with the end in interview. Um, it's, it doesn't make you grim. It, it makes you purposeful uh, and, it, and it gives joy and spice to life. So I think it's a really powerful and helpful thing. Yeah, I, I agree. When I listened to a chance, when I had a chance to listen to your guys interview with uh, Dr. Davis, it honestly reminded me of just processing the feelings that I had uh, about my own father passing on his deathbed with just days to go, he realized that he was not prepared. Uh, as independent as he was as a man, he was not prepared to wrestle with the question of death. And um, it was through a mutual friend of the family who talked to him about uh, Jesus. And he said, yes, I, I need Jesus because otherwise I will not be prepared. And within 72 hours, he passed. Wow. So uh, some of the stories that he shared in part one about uh, people having the ability to respond and, you know, him getting choked up, um, again, just shows that it's not inhuman or something that we should dodge when we talk about death. So without further ado, let's get right into part two of our conversation with Bill Davis. Hey, welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch. And we're talking uh, again and continue our conversation with uh, Professor Bill Davis. Professor Davis is um, at the Westminster Seminary in California, has his master's degree from the Met Westminster Seminary in California and his PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He's a professor of philosophy at Covenant College 
adjunct professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's the author of Departing in Peace, Biblical Decision-Making at the End of Life. Uh, Dr. Davis, thank you for joining us again here on Disciple Making Over Lunch. It's great to be here. Uh, when we left off uh, last time, PJ was about to ask a phenomenal question. So, <laughs> PJ, I want to hand it over to you. Thanks for that great introduction there, Danish. I appreciate it. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate the the insight that you brought to just uh, my personal life, and I'm sure the people who are listening so far, uh, Professor Davis, and just this this pressing question on my mind just really pops up as as you're discussing these really in depth interesting things. So I'm a pastor of a church and I find out that one of my parishioners has just been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness. Um, maybe it's a kind of illness like cancer that sometimes it does lead to, to, to death, but other times it's a, it's a struggle. Uh, sometimes uh, that that's going to lead to a cure, but I know that they're going to be going down a difficult journey and I don't know what path that that journey is going to look like or where it's going to end up. You know, at what point do I as a pastor start to 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 initiate conversations about the kind of end of life discussions that we're, we're kind of talking about here? Mm -hmm. do, do I start that early on in the process or do I kind of wait until we get closer to that decision making uh, necessity? So I think the earlier you can start it naturally, the better. So uh, and um, one possible opening is to say, is to say, if you don't already know, for you to say, can you tell me the story of when your parents died, if they've if they're no longer with us? Tell, tell me the story. And and then they will you'll learn a lot from that because you'll get a sense of whether they've they have a lively imagination about what it looks like to reach the end. <laughs> And you'll also, it'll be really clear in there talking about it, what mattered to them. And almost certainly some part of it will be frustrating. I only wish we'd talked about it sooner. At some point they will say, <laughs> I wish we had talked about it sooner. And that's your opening is to say, so what exactly did you wish that you'd talked about? And um, can I be part of you talking with your family about it? So you... What you want to do is you want to make sure that their family members knows, because ideally their family is going to be the one making the decisions and not you <laughs> because for all kinds of reasons. The, uh, the hospital would much rather have the, you know, the, the order that the law prescribes start with the wife, then go to the children, then go to the parents, then to the siblings. So there's a, every state has a slightly different order, but those are all involved. They want the family speaking for people who need medical decisions made and you making the decision. It isn't that they don't trust you. It's that there are enough. Well, sadly, we all know there are enough people who claim to be ministers of the gospel that are fleecing the flock. Sure, and sure. so um, unless you already have a relationship with the people who are giving the care, they're going to be holding you at arm's length saying, so why exactly are you investing so much time here? And that's not irrational. And it's sad, but it's not irrational. So you want to say, can I help you have a conversation with your family that does what you wish had happened with your parents? Right. Now, if their parents are still alive, they're, say, younger, somebody who's young and stricken with cancer, um, 
or something that has a likely uh, much sooner than we want outcome, you say, I can help you prepare your family. And that's just a conversation about what's likely to come. That's first you go to your doctor and say, let's suppose this doesn't work. The, the thing that medicine does its best and, um, you know, our prayers for healing are not answered with healing. They're answered, but they're not answered with healing. Right. Then what's it going to look like? What's the time frame? Um, is there a point at which I'm going to... I'm still going to be alive, but unable to answer questions because of the medicine, because of altered cognitive status, something. And then the family needs to hear that because they will be so much better off if they've had this advance warning. They've got a prequel on what's coming. It's not all disorienting. It's, oh, okay, this is in the neighborhood of the story that I expected. Most people want to be able to make sense of their life as it's happening. (laughs) And the more you can do to show them that the the narrative is going to fit within certain parameters and say it's going to be like this and we're probably going to have to make this kind of hard decision and if that happens and you can't make it for yourself how would you like your children to make the decision so and the doctor will the doctor can lay all that out of how it's likely to go so you can be part of it now if they're not sick at all i think the best time to do it is before anybody gets sick yeah, yeah. is just say uh like whether you wanted to or not for the next four weeks we're going to be talking about this as part of our christian education program and i don't know if you, on the back of the book uh, danish there's there's this uh in like orange yeah 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 it says uh free lesson and group discussion plans available yeah. If you go to the PNR website, uh, there's download. There's two different formats for a four-week Christian education program that gives scripts, and you don't have to know anything. So that, you can leave uh, that. That web address is prpbooks.com. Prpbooks.com. You're looking for uh, departing in peace. Right. I don't know if you've seen the, but but I I wrote the lesson plans. Because when I was trying to convince them to publish the book, I promised lesson plans and I promised to fill out every state's advanced directive, which I've done. Oh, and my gosh. So if you're interested, that's that's also available. Um, well, certainly, as I've been reading your book, my wife and I have been having conversations about advanced directives and right. and and. Uh, and and I've become actually a little bit of a pain to some of the people in my church as I've been talking with them and just saying, Hey, do you have an advanced directive? Are you, That's you, right. Uh, because I, I, you've convinced me that this is a, a vital thing for us to do. The truth is, I mean, I, my wife and I, we were just, uh, just before this, com- this uh, conversation with you, my wife and I were on a five hour car trip. And I was thinking as we were driving, uh, we're driving into a snowstorm. Uh, and seeing, <laughs> we may not you know, come out of this. <laughs> well, yeah, we we were passing by five or six, I think we passed six different accidents oh, on our way no. here. And all you think of was, you know, uh, not all I could think of, but one of the things that was in my head was, you know, I'm, I might not be, be perfectly healthy, but be driving along in a car and spin out and get in an accident. And suddenly my kids need to make decisions about my care. Um, it can happen. That kind of situation can happen whether you're elderly or young, whether you're healthy or not. Right. So, right. And having had the conversation ahead of time, if all you do with an advanced directive is identify an agent. So the very beginning of in some states, it's a whole separate form for identifying an agent. There's one for 
uh, instructions about the care you want. But I'm pretty sure New York has a unified form. I'm trying to remember. Um, but the the identifying an agent is the only thing that you absolutely must do, because then the hospital doesn't have to wonder. Okay, right. which uh, which of these children should be making the call? Do the uh, a handful of states have the children vote, which is terrible. Um, but oh my gosh! Al- almost all states. They want most states require the consensus of the children, unless one of the children has been identified by the assigning of an agent and an advanced directive. But if all you do is assign an agent, you don't have to fill out the rest of it, get it, sign it, get it um, witnessed, then and then talk to that child or that sibling about what you'd want. Then. The hospital will know we only have to talk to one person. That person, of course, is talking to the rest of your family getting help. But the hospital knows we don't have to have a family conference and hope for consensus, which will take care will be compromised by waiting for consensus. So one is going to do the speaking and it doesn't it doesn't have to be the oldest child. It's just somebody who you think could get, you know, could speak for you and would not break down and be unable to talk. Right? And so some of it has to do with personalities. And you just tell them, um, I'm asking you to do it. Are you willing to do it? And then the chapter in the book, if, if you're reading the chapter on stories, that the, which gives accounts of real cases, and it works through and says, so what, what would you say here? That's the fastest way to get an agent up to speed. It goes through a bunch of different kinds of cases and says, if, if I were the person in the bed, what would you, this is what I would want. So you could use the, the book that way. Fantastic. So, um, so you're, we don't know, none of us knows how much, how much longer we have, and we don't know when the end of our life will come. And so you're advocating here for an advanced directive to help people think through, you know, what are the values that I have and, and how do I want my care to be conducted? Um, if, if I, if I become incapacitated and I'm not able to actually make those decisions on my own, what, what would you say to somebody who would say, who says, you know, well, you know, my life, my death is in God's hands mm-hmm. and it's, and it's, it's presumptive of me to, uh, to make these kinds of decisions ahead of time. Who knows what the Lord might, might lead. Um, well, I wouldn't poo poo it because it's certainly motivated by a significant trust in the Lord. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't say what's wrong with you. I would say you're not doing it to tempt God or to question God. This is, this is not an expression of a lack of confidence in mm. God's goodness or or trying to get the, a jump on him on the timing or anything. Uh, what You do this for your family. You do this for the loved ones who are going to, unless you are, unless you die in a plane crash mm-hmm. where it, the, uh, the amount it's of time, any, it's, it's all over very fast. Um, even if you're in a car accident, anymore, the chances that you will expire before the EMTs get there are pretty low. So you're probably there's probably going to be and EMTs are good at resuscitating you unless they took your head off, even if it was just, you know, the steering column goes you know, through 
part of your head, they probably can keep you alive until they get you to the hospital. So uh, people are going to have to make choices. Do we resuscitate him if he arrests again? Do we attempt to wean him from these machines? All those things. And the family has to make those decisions. But So you can't. So you are doing it for them. It is a gift to them. It's the very same reason that you write a will. Because <laughs> the will says to your family, it's gonna, you're going to be grieving and it will be lousy when I'm gone. And the state is going to say, okay, who gets this stuff? And you're going to look at each other and say, right now we just want to cry. And, <laughs> and the state's going to say, yeah, but it belongs to somebody today. And there's a lien on the property and there's taxes that are owed and somebody's got to pay these things. So the will is that's not tempting God with anything. And it doesn't express any lack of confidence. It's saying when people have to decide, I'm going to help them. Uh, I'm going to bless my family by taking away this this part of the awfulness of what will be the end of my life. Yeah, but you're doing a, a light show. Over I don't here. know what's going Danish. on in this room. <laughs> you know, I appreciate what you're saying, Bill, because uh, a lot of times we, we we want to trust God with our lives. But we forget that trusting in God in preparation is part of trusting in God. Mm. So God knows the beginning from the end. And if I go before him and say, Lord, I want your wisdom regarding decisions that I should be making at the end of my life. I, I want your wisdom regarding what to do with a will that uh, I, I believe that he is just as present in that decision making at that point in time, even if it's 20 years distance, right, man. as opposed to saying, I can only ask upon the Lord's um, input in a situation immediately. And the, the thought of doing it at a time where you're thinking more rationally and you're not pressed to make these decisions. I like your analogy to the will, because I think that's, that's something that we can, we can relate to really well. Mm -hmm. Those are times that I want to go through and make those decisions, but same kind of thing with these medical decisions as well. Right. And PJ, one of the things you said has really sparked a thought in my mind, and that's that, you know, we're, we are trusting God with our lives, but part of this is trusting God with our deaths. And uh, Billy, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> um, and and that, that, uh, that for the Christian, uh, death is a defeated foe, um, and not something to be feared. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, the even for believers. So I want to be very careful how I talk about this because uh, let me let me separate it. For the person who is dying, it's no fun. Right. And it's scary. And usually, the principal part, even for believers, no matter how strong your confidence is. No matter how, no matter what work the Holy Spirit has done to uh, to work confidence in Christ's sufficiency for you in you, mm -hmm. uh, it's the going through. Nobody knows what it's like to expire, and nobody can even tell you about it. And so you don't know what the pain is like. You don't know what the sense of loss is like. But the, but the big thing is, is you you have this. We're all sure that there's going to be this profound sense of not being in control. Mm. which by itself is scary. So you don't want to tell people who are uh, very close to death, uh, there's something wrong with you if you're afraid of right. the dying process. Right. Because that's a, that's a physical, psychological, emotional event. And 
there's an awful lot that we're going to lose control. And that's Mm -hmm. scary to lose control. Even when your, your hope is fixed clearly on Jesus, you still don't know how that's going to go. And and you also don't know whether you're going to lose it in the middle. There's, there's also a reasonable fear that you'll get to that moment and the sense of panic that goes with losing control over your physical being will cause you to say things that undo what you think you've tried to be consistent about all your life. So Mm -hmm. it's just that part, that's just reasonable fear. It's not sinful fear. And so you don't want to tell people be tough, uh, be tough for people who are watching. Mm -hmm. Don't do that to people who are, who are in the middle of the struggle themselves. And you can also help the family uh, who are, it's great for them to be there. You can help them by saying, um, let's sing or let's, Let's read the passages of scripture that meant the most so that they don't have to carry the convert. The one who's dying doesn't have to carry the conversation. They can um, settle back into the arms of the community and their family and the word of God. So, and that will bear them up through that fearful part. So the, the family also is going through pre-grieving, my psychology friends tell me. Uh, they haven't lost the person yet, mm. but they're going to. And right. so they've, they've begun the process of lamenting what it means to be without them, that there will be this hole that opens up in their life that used to be filled by this person. And they know that Jesus uh, is the Lord of comfort as well and will fill the hole with other things, but it hasn't been filled yet. Because it hasn't been opened yet, so but they're starting the process of of reweaving their life without this person, and that's they shouldn't be cutting those ties before the person is gone, but they're getting ready for it. Right. So you also don't want to tell the family, uh, "Don't cry." <laughs> right, right. Crying right. is uh, lament is high grieving, high hope. It's it's your you're weeping with the confidence that, that Jesus wins. Mm. And so it's, it's like you cry with them, like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is crying, what, wet, snotty tears, uh, knowing that he's going to raise him from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's that's lament. And so so you don't you want to make sure that the family is given permission. And you might even talk about that. In your sermons, when you have occasion, when you're preaching through the Psalms or you're dealing with John 11 and you're talking about how Jesus dealt with the death of Lazarus, you say, we are not Stoics. There's no virtue in being so tough that you're unmoved by the world being a broken place. And so you want to show that to them. Uh, I think pastors have to be careful just to be themselves. Some mm-hmm. people, some people just aren't very demonstrative in their emotional life. And so you don't have to become the kind of person who could be visibly unmade by your grieving over the brokenness of the world. You know, I, I don't think you have to nurture an affect of any kind, but you just want to make sure you haven't tamped it down because you think it's your job to be the grown up in the room. No, the right. grown up in the room is, is weeping over this as well, maybe just mostly on the inside, but they're, um, they're sorrowing over the brokenness of you know, the, 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 the fall imposed. This is all not the way it's supposed to be. And it's okay just to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And it helps. It really helps people who, because 
American Christianity, well, for longer than Christianity in the West mm. has been tempted by an ideal of impassivity, mm. that what it means to be spiritually strong is not to be moved, mm. either to great delight. And it differs from tradition to tradition. So there are Christian traditions, the, the, the charismatic traditions, for example, are much better at just being outward about mm. delight and about sorrow and uh, Presbyterians or maybe reformed Presbyterians are maybe the absolute worst. <laughs> do, do all things decently and in order. Decently and in order, but that, especially that in no order. Emotions. <laughs> no emotions, right? <laughs> like I have to tell my students, like what Presbyterians are good at is that we read the grunts in the room like, Ugh. okay, yeah, that's affirmation. <laughs> well, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we're about halfway between. Oh, really? Semi-demonstrative, but fairly ordered. Right. The perfect yeah. denomination. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, right in the middle, which sounds it has to be right. So but but part of that is you want to talk about it, because um, even after it's over, I do early in the book, I talk about uh, casuistry and about telling the story and about how important it is that you give your parishioners the way to tell the story to themselves later so that because in the middle of it, it's just a fog. And when they're coming out of it, they're going to remember parts of what you said that gave them permission to describe it this way. So instead of we gave up and pulled the plug. Right. 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 So, right. so, and because they're going to remember that we yeah. gave up and it will increase their grief. So you want, while you're there, you're saying that he, uh, uh, your mother has told you what she wanted. And she said she believed this is what Jesus would have her do. Mm. And we're following her, her at what she, we believe that this is a faithful use of all that Jesus gave her. And we're carrying out her wishes as a follower of Jesus. Well, later, like six months later, when they're thinking, what just happened? Well, what comes to mind is with the words you gave them that we assisted mom in following Jesus all the way to the end, mm. which is far better than, well, you know, cancer just won, which is not yeah. what happened. Mm. So you want to be, you just want to make sure you're telling people, you're giving them the words that they're going to be able to use for themselves because they're going to re, they're, 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 later they're going to have to integrate it into the story of their own life because they're not doing that in the middle of it. And, but they will remember the way you did. So this is, there's a, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, the pastor as minor poet, I think is the title of the book, but it's, um, but it's the, the role that the pastors in particular have in teaching people how to tell the story of what's happened. Mm. It's not random. It's God, God's providence was such that this happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, who would thought that a conversation here about death would be so encouraging? So uh, thank you, Dr. Davis, uh, Bill, for being with us uh, here on Disciple Making Over Lunch. Um, the book that uh, Bill Davis has written is called Departing in Peace, Biblical Decision Making at the End of Life. It is a powerful book. Uh, for helping us to think through how we can be faithful stewards of Jesus Christ with our lives and with our deaths. Um, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. Wow, it was great to hear the second half of that powerful interview. Really good stuff in there. 
Ryan, what was something that really impacted you and what Dr. Davis had to say? Well, you know me, I love the practical tips that I can put into practice immediately. And when he suggested that one of the ways that you can counsel people is to show up and be there, which I think we know, but then what do you say and what do you do when he suggested that you can give your parishioners or the people that you're with a way to tell the story six months later, reinforce why they're doing what they're doing, why they're making these particular end of life decisions, or they're investing some resources or doing some uh, parent or family or loved one honoring things in a way that they would appreciate. And you framework that so that six months later, they start to process the story in a very healthy way and see that the end of their life was a, a great concluding portion to that person's book. I thought that was was very, very helpful as something that I could take and immediately begin to help. Don't look for, I need to immediately comfort you, although I hope that happens, but to give them something that, you know, six months to a year or however long it takes, they start to see the bigger picture of how their loved one lived their life and how they honored them at the end of days. I thought, I thought that was just an enormously helpful tip. Danish, how about you? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, for me, it was also a, a very practical. The second half was very practical, um, especially he, he talked about how, you know, at the very least, what we ought to do in our uh, end of life decision making is to assign someone as a decision making agent. And he talked about um, on, on, the, on the website for the book, um, how he has uh, a couple of courses there. I went to the website. Um, the website is uh, prpbooks.com. And uh, you can search there for departing in peace. And you can see at, at, the, at the page, there's a, uh, there are two four-week courses, one on sort of the theory and the other one on sort of the practice, which both are excellent. Um, and uh, he also has a state-by-state -state breakdown. With, uh, he's filled out, the, <laughs> filled out these, each state's advanced directive forms in, in, as sort of one example of how one might do that, uh, that in, in each state. Um, I found them both profoundly uh, helpful and profoundly practical. And I think uh, you know, if you're interested in these questions, going to the website, checking it out um, will be very helpful. I'm, I plan actually to teach those courses. It sounds like those are, would be helpful courses to teach here at my church. Uh, how about you, Peach? Well, to be honest with you, uh, end of life kind of issues was one of the things that I feared most about going into full-time ministry. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of thankful that God put me into a youth pastor role first, thinking that I wasn't yeah. going to have to deal with anything like this. And then what happens is well, the father of a couple of kids that were in our youth ministry went in for a surgery that didn't seem to be life-threatening and he never, he never woke up from it. And there I was at the hospital visiting these kids because their dad was having a surgery. And then I ended up being the person that was counseling the family with end of life things. Yeah. And I, my personal experience before that was one of fear, uh, yeah. was not prepared. Here, here were these things that were coming at you really quickly. You don't have a lot of time to make decisions. And these are significant decisions about how do you choose whether you leave someone on life support or are you going to pull the plug? Do the doctors feel that there is hope? Are we going to pray? And how much time do we give for God to respond to these things? I mean, to be honest with you, these were very, very scary things for me. Oh, yeah, and I didn't realize that this kind of a resource was out there. 
So I'm very thankful for this interview. I'm thankful for the things that I've learned. This is a book that is on my to read list now so that I I can walk into these situations, not with fear, but a sense of preparedness Mm. and and more than preparedness. I I can look at this as an opportunity to disciple someone through a very difficult time of life. So for me, this this was a really, really good interview. And, and I hope as you were listening to this, that perhaps it, it helped alleviate some of your fears. It helped make you feel as if you could be prepared to have these kind of conversations within your own family or to have these conversations with other people that you are ministering to. I know I've had conversations with my kids. One of the things that Dr. Davis said is that they believe that hearing is one of the last senses to go for someone that is in this kind of a situation. And it might sound silly, but I actually said to my kids, there's two things that I would like in this kind of a situation. One of them is I'd like you to play worship music in my room, even if you don't think I can hear it. I, I would like to be able to be in that in that kind of situation where I can worship the Lord, just listening to the music. And then number two Talk to me as if I can hear you. Don't ignore me in the room. Uh, engage with me as if I can hear you, because to me, that would be a great comfort during that time. So those are some practical things that I got out of this. And I hope that as you've listened to this, there are some practical things for you, too, as well. We do hope that today's uh, podcast and uh, part one as well have been helpful to you as you consider how you can do disciple making even at the end of life and have those important conversations. Uh, We do hope that if you have enjoyed this podcast and you enjoy the disciple making over lunch conversations, that you would subscribe, that you would leave a comment on the podcast on your favorite podcast engine. Uh, But also we'd love to hear from you. Uh, We are part of the district disciple making ministry team of the Christian and missionary Alliance in the Northeastern district. We are the DDMT of the NEDC. And uh, the DDMT offers support and resources to help equip leaders of children, youth, and adult ministries. And we would love to hear from you. Uh, What questions can we help answer for you? What conversations would you like to have? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at nedcma.org. That's nedcma.org. Look under ministries for disciple making. Until next time, I'm Brian French. I'm Danish House. And I'm PJ Boganyevsky. And this has been Disciple Making Over Lunch.